You never used to ask a lot of questions. Harry, I was so happy when you came over tonight. When I heard you open up the door, my toes were dancing under the covers. But I don't think I'm going to wait for you anymore. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 53 and I don't know about you, but I feel like somebody's watching us. That's right. This entire episode is going to be about Rockwell. My favorite Michael Jackson assist song of all time. More Than the Girl Is Mine? That's not an assist. That's a duet. (laughs) Okay. okay. And it's also The Doggone Girl Is Mine. Thank you very much. Sorry. Actually, my choice is The Conversation from 1974, directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring Gene Hackman, John Cazal, Alan Garfield, Frederick Forrest, Cindy Williams, Michael Higgins, Elizabeth McRae, Robert Duvall, Terry Garr, and Harrison Ford. It's about a paranoid surveillance expert who has a crisis of conscience when he suspects that a couple that he is spying on might come to harm as a result of his investigation. Just a reminder, if you're new to the show, we do discuss spoilers in detail, so if you haven't watched the film, go back, check it out, and then rejoin us for the discussion. This opening sequence is a virtuoso piece of voyeurism. You stole my word. I also wrote virtuosity. Well, when you have Haskell Wexler behind the camera, you have nothing less. Plus, you mentioned all of those wonderful actors, and I'm so glad that you named all of them because they're each key to the film. And then you've got Walter Murch as sound editor and sound designer as well. So how do you begin to even take us through this opening scene? There's so much going on, so many players to watch. The only thing to do is just go where the camera takes you. When you're in the hands of a consummate professional, you follow. It starts with the long view, the God's eye view of Union Square in San Francisco on a busy weekend afternoon. Shoppers, tourists, musicians, mimes. And I don't know about you, but my very first thought, the very first time I watched this was, I hope it's the mime that gets killed (laughs) when we're talking about what the central mystery of this thing is. Even though the mime is Robert Shields, am I correct, of Shields and Yarnell fame? You are absolutely correct. And by fame, I put that in quotation marks. Though, now that I'm saying that, they were hugely famous. I wouldn't say quotation marks. You don't get a primetime variety show in quotation marks. Pink Lady and Jeff accepted. (laughs) So we have this slow push-in from a great distance that's taking in the entire square until it fixes on Gene Hackman and follows him until it passes us off to the couple that's being observed, Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest. Aside from the technical virtuosity that's going on here, upon your first viewing, what were your impressions? What did you think was happening with the couple, with the people that were obviously observing the couple? As you mentioned, that first viewing for me was all about trying to figure out what was happening. So I was more focused on the story or what I thought the story might be be or where it might be going than getting to explore how the film was made. And so I'm really glad that I got to watch it two more times in preparation for the show. What I remember thinking, and it was the same thing with this next viewing because there had been enough distance of time, 
I was thinking immediately, I guess this is about infidelity. I'm assuming the couple that I'm watching are having an illicit affair. I think that's a reasonable assumption given what we're shown, and in fact, the excellent John Cazale, functioning as the audience surrogate, asks the questions we would be asking a number of times. Specifically, what's so special about these people? Why are we watching them? Because throughout, it's a fairly banal conversation. It's not as though they're revealing state secrets that seem to be quite obvious. And they're having the sort of conversation that anyone might have in that setting. It seems small-scale and domestic. Yes. There are clues that something else is going on, that maybe other parties are involved, and it's also a fairly big clue that so much work is being put into tracking these people, but what they're talking about, the actual words, isn't setting off huge alarm bells. And as you mentioned, John Cazal is talking about why are we caring about these people, and Harry specifically says... I don't care what they're talking about. Harry being? Harry is Harry Call, played by Gene Hackman, our surveillance expert. I like the thing you mentioned about the extravagance of the setup, because this technology is obviously cutting edge in 1974. And the capabilities of that technology are pretty astounding. When you see just exactly how much that camera can see, I can't imagine what the technology must be like now. But even in 1974, I'm sure an audience was maybe a little bit disturbed at what was suggested as being possible, especially as the release of this dovetailed with all of the Watergate revelations. It wasn't especially meant to represent that. It was actually written several years before, but it took the success of The Godfather to be able to bankroll this smaller, more personal project that he had been sitting on, so the timing of it just happened to work out that way. And I don't know about you, but it still seems like a grand technical achievement to me, looking back on it decades later. Like I mentioned, that is primarily the responsibility of Haskell Wexler, whom shot this opening sequence and then was unceremoniously removed from the rest of the film, that job being taken over by Bill Butler. And as I mentioned, the work of Walter Murch putting us into this scene, all of these discordant sounds what it's like to have the distortion of the voices tuning in and out of certain parts. Seeing the two of them collaborate together to create this is pretty amazing because you've got Wexler, who I think dictated as much about how films of the 70s looked as any individual director, and then the contributions of Merch, whose work essentially created the position of sound designer. Well, the scene is so well-crafted and enigmatic, and so many resources are being brought to bear upon this, it's clear that something very important is being documented. And we have what seems like the setup for a somewhat traditional mystery thriller. And this is where Coppola does the most interesting thing to me. He veers completely away from where you would usually go. Coppola mentions that we're given two choices in a film like this. We can either follow the eavesdropper or those being eavesdropped upon. Usually, the much sexier story, are the characters who are involved in the tryst, the infidelity. And most often, a character like Hackman's would end up being ignored or pushed to the margins. Rather, in this case, he is the central character. Gene Hackman's performance is what makes the film, as far as I'm concerned. You feel the same? Absolutely. I do want to return again to all of these other players, though, because 
when we do initially think, oh, we're going to be following this couple throughout the film, I think even in this small part, Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest, they're both doing excellent work. There's so much happening in their face and with inflection, which I know we'll be returning to many times. Hackman regards this as one of his favorite roles that he's ever had. Do you see it as distinctly different from what he usually does? You know, I had this impression going in that, wow, this is a wildly different character for him. I'm not used to seeing him this way. I think of him as Hackman the bombast, having these really almost over-the-top, very verbose characters. Explosive. Explosive. So I was looking back through his filmography, and that's really more based on the fact that I've watched a lot of these roles in reverse order. So I came to later roles and then worked backwards. And then thinking about that establishing part for him of Popeye Doyle and the French Connection. Mm -hmm. So this is about as far as you can get. Hackman himself said something really interesting about the character. I think he called him constipated, (laughs) which I think is a great way to describe it. And so up to this point, when we're about to really switch this focus and get into what the movie is really about, all we know is that Harry is talking about The job is what's important, not what is happening to these people. And we see what he looks like, which is very important, his costume. I want to talk about what are, for me, the two main pieces of the costume. First, the glasses. They're the sort that have the dark frame over the top, and then the lenses are bare at the bottom. And it all means that it's very hard to see his eyes most of the time. And so the use of close-up, which is very sparing on him, I think is fascinating. The second piece, which is probably the most famous part, is that translucent raincoat. And I love the fact that it's translucent, and it's so important because that's the only part of him that we can see into. It stops right there. He still has the suit on. We still are left with knowing no more than we did at the start. It's all very telling. That, in conjunction with his name, Call is his last name, C-A-U-L, which turns out was a fortunate typo on the part of the person who was transcribing Coppola's notes. If you're born with a call, it's basically a veil. You're born with the remnants of an amniotic sac that covers your head and or shoulders. And it's very auspicious. Cultures all the way back to antiquity consider it to be a good omen in most cases. It signifies that you are a special person. In this case, in conjunction with the raincoat, it's just one of a number of instances that we're going to see throughout the film in which there is a veil between him and the rest of the world. Basically, the upshot of it is, when hiring a stenographer, make sure you get one that's going to only improve your metaphors with their transcription errors. So beyond the costuming, we are beginning to get glimpses into Harry's private life. We see him arrive home from work, and his space has been violated. His landlord has left a birthday gift in the apartment, which is triple locked and set with an alarm. This desire for anonymity and isolation, and this clear sensitivity to having his privacy violated, it has to be a product of the job, right? Since he knows so many things about people that they don't know he knows, he does not want that turned back on him. I wonder how much of it is the chicken or the egg. Was he always this way, so that was a natural job for him to fall into? Everything about his personality seems to indicate that, but there also are one or two circumstances in his history that have exacerbated this. 
So everything that he has built that we see is to create a fortress for himself. Fortress of solitude, I guess, for lack of a better term. To insulate himself from the outside world. Which is why it was so surprising to me when we see him go to meet Amy, this woman he is having a relationship with, played by Terry Gar. He is clearly taciturn and reserved and wound a little tight and does not want anyone to know him. So why is he engaging in this? What does he hope to get out of this? Because it's not as though when he comes in the room, he immediately starts having sex with her. There's a physical intimacy. (laughs) Is that what you do when you walk into a room? Well, you tell me. He's physically affectionate and physically intimate in his way. He keeps his clothes on, but he's very close with her. Not just his clothes, his raincoat. So is it purely a physical expression of what he's feeling, but that is not animalistic, passionate lovemaking? I don't imagine he's ever manifested animalistic anything. So even if he is so isolated, does he still, though, need some sort of outlet? Or is it his attempt to try to grow into something more? I don't think we know the answer. I think I know the answer, at least a small part of it. But before I get into what makes me think so, was this your favorite scene in the whole thing? I noted that I thought it might be when we were sitting there watching it, just based on what I know about your history of choices for the show, and how much you veer toward the romantic, and how much emphasis you often put on that part of a movie, regardless of what else the movie is about. No, it was not my favorite. So, for example, if you took it out and put it in Bridget Jones' diary, it still wouldn't be my favorite, necessarily. (laughs) My favorite scene comes later. It's actually with Robert Duvall. That's my favorite, but we'll get to that later. I thought it was really interesting, but I was focused on other things. Like what? What were you focused on? I was more focused on the technical pieces that were catching my eye. For example, I was mentioning the close-ups earlier, In this scene, he takes his glasses off, those glasses that normally cover his eyes, so that he can kiss her. And that's when we get a really interesting view of his face. So I wasn't so caught up in the small romance. Well, the two things that clearly stake out his position for me, one, the body language of shutdown, when she will not stop asking questions. There may be no scene I related to more in the movie than this one. I know exactly the resignation that he felt, and I saw in his movements exactly how I have moved before, when I am ready to just be finished with this thing, whatever that thing is. And the other thing that made it clear to me how he feels about this is on the bus ride home, to me, he seems completely satisfied. Right. He doesn't seem depressed by the turn of events. Something occurred to me, which I think gets fleshed out a little bit more later, but I wanted to ask right now. A lot of people could view this character, an isolated character, someone who values their privacy, someone who doesn't relate to other people, as being lonely. But do you think it's loneliness if it's a choice? And I guess even before that, would you even characterize him as lonely? I would. It's an extremely lonely film, it feels like. But it may be a more, according to Hoyle, loneliness than an actual deeply felt emotion. It may be loneliness strictly by definition. I may be splitting some very fine semantic hairs here, but to me it's more forlorn than lonely, specifically. But not in the sense of needing to fill a void. 
in the very specific sense that he is the only one of his kind. So there is nothing to be done about it. Even if he was able to overcome the gulf between him and the rest of humanity, he wouldn't feel any better, I don't think. So ultimately, it's not sad. So I think I only answered part of your question. No, it is not a choice. He is made the way he is made, and there's just nothing to be done about that. Nothing that would be genuine. Is he lonely? Yes, very specifically in the way that I mentioned, and he does exhibit an understanding of the fact that he is separate from everyone, and tries to bridge that gap in certain ways that are bound to fail. I guess the main thing I want to put across is that understanding yourself and knowing yourself to be a lonely person does not necessarily equate to being a sad person. He's only going to give so much of himself when he is conscious of making the decision to do so. Where it gets interesting is when he goes to turn the tapes over and he starts to find himself becoming more emotionally invested in spite of himself, maybe. Now, on your first pass through this, before you knew what was motivating this, before you knew more about his history, what did you think he was taking so personally? Was it strictly the principle of the thing because he had set up very specific conditions for the transfer of this information? So he's clearly digging in and trying to figure out why he's digging in on, on this issue. Is it a function of character? Is it a sign of his growing agitation of, around this issue? I still couldn't figure out why this case. Why is he so tied to this case? On your first viewing, you mean? Or do you still have that question after having seen it a few times and knowing what motivates it? Both. I'm thinking back to where I was at this point in the film. Okay. So trying to think about how my assumptions were changing as it was going. And one of those, this is maybe a little bit odd, and tell me if this occurred to you at all. And this could also be a function of when we're watching it now. But when the idea is introduced that he has been contracted and is supposed to hand the tapes over to the director. I immediately thought director of the FBI. I think I thought CIA. So I was thinking some sort of government or secret level, not board of directors or film director or whatever. Right. The mystery part of this is parceled out really well, actually, in retrospect. I love the way the mystery element of the movie is doled out just enough to keep us more and more interested in what the ramifications of these actions are. And then I think if you pitch it as director means something more high level, possibly nefarious, possibly government related, then the stakes seem to be much higher than if we're just talking about an infidelity. So is he then feeling the enormity of this situation? Is that what is making him dig in and making him get more agitated? I also think about a couple of color choices that pop up first in the scene and are tied with Harrison Ford. He plays the director's assistant's character. And it's the use of red. So the first time we see this red, when he comes into the assistant's office and he's sitting on this couch, it's red. And then a few moments later, when he has not handed over the tapes, and clearly the assistant still wants them and wants to make sure he understands this situation is dangerous and you don't fully understand it, Harry is in the hallway, which is in more of wood tones, and then the assistant is backlit against a red room. And I'll mention that red again later on as well. It comes up again with that character when he's at the convention. 
I feel like the, the tone is really shifting at this point. More shady characters. When Harry's in the hallway, he sees Frederick Forrest's character. When he gets into the elevator, there's Cindy Williams. He tries to get as far away from her as he can. So I don't know if it's his mounting dread or it's the situation's mounting potential for danger that's affecting him. I don't think it's either one. I think it's very specifically an event in his past that went so horribly wrong with a previous case that other people ended up dead. And we learn about that later. Yes, on a first pass through this, we don't know that at this point. But when you have that to inform this scene, to me it can't be anything else. He is still so scarred by his responsibility for what happened to innocent parties. Murder. Decapitation, in fact. That he will carry that guilt with him always. I think that is borne out by the use of the close-up on his face when he's in the elevator. If you think about him replaying the scene of what his actions have led to in the past, when he sees this woman that he's been watching and listening to come into his face, I think his face shows that. And that's only doubled down upon when he goes into the confessional. Of all the things that he has done, of all the jobs that have happened in the years between then and now, the things that he specifically mentions as his sins are two petty things that he has done in the past few days, and this thing that echoes the event before. It is clearly on his mind. In this confessional scene, he displays that level of compartmentalization. He talks about how this thing that he is vaguely referring to, this terrible event that took place, it's not my responsibility, but I'm heartily sorry. So it's something that he can't admit out loud. He also, in giving his litany of sins, talks about taking the Lord's name in vain, which is something that really affects him. And I'm thinking about how he is describing these sins. And it's the second interesting moment where he is unable to articulate himself. He stumbles over his words. And that takes me back to a moment before this scene when he is in his workshop. In that scene where he is working through the tapes with Stan, he is trying to describe that he doesn't know anything about human nature, which to me I want to talk more about throughout this episode. And he doesn't know anything about curiosity, that this is just his business. He can't articulate that same idea. He gets hung up, and it seems like it's more words than he's used to saying. Constipated. Yeah. Well, that scene with Stan is pivotal for a number of reasons, aside from the obvious one, which is, it is that scene where he finally uncovers the one sentence that the couple says to one another that was inaudible so far. And that is, he'd kill us if he had the chance. So his work task actually reflects the larger philosophical struggle that he is having. He is struggling to understand specific communication, one human being to another understanding inflection, understanding the meaning of what's being said. In addition to that, there's also this point where he gets agitated with Stan, for Stan being a little cavalier, taking the Lord's name in vain, not taking the job seriously. And I thought to myself, his agitation is uncharacteristic. That was the first time I made a note like that. It turns out I made several notes to myself like that. That's out of character. That doesn't seem like him. And I realized finally, after writing this down three or four times, 
the movie is doing a very good job in putting across that he is hard to know because I have built up all these expectations for how I think he is going to behave and he is confounding them again and again and again. So, much like everyone else in his circle, I do not know Harry at all. So, for example, on paper, you have a person who is a closed-off surveillance expert and you expect him to behave one way. Then you have someone who is potentially deeply scarred by a terrible act that he caused and you expect him to act one way. Then you see that this person who's closed off also has possibly a mistress. And then you see a person who is a devout Catholic. How do all of those things live in the same body? And then in our next big section, we have this convention. And it's yet another side, or not side, but some sort of outward manifestation of these conflicts. Before we get to that behavior, though, I want to ask you, have you been to many conventions or conferences? Only a couple, and definitely never a wiretappers conference. I've never been to one of those either, but I have probably been to exponentially more conventions and conferences than you have, and they are all sad affairs, I have to say. So even though this looks to be extremely grubby, I think it's fairly representative of most of them. So all those times you did karaoke at the Pirate's Cove Lounge didn't turn that around for you? Pretty much. And hearing other people's stories, for example, you know, ZZ Top playing to 25 people in an audience and they probably made a million dollars or something and nobody cares. <laughs> nobody knows what's going on. In between getting pins with the, the name of the vendor on them at 50 different places. Yeah, not not fun. You got bugged 50 different times. I probably did. Joke's on them, though, because my life is super boring. What'd you do for karaoke? Lonesome Loser by the Little River Band? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, this convention is sad and terrible. Mostly embodied by Moran, who is the East Coast king of the surveillance experts. Harry's equivalent back in New York. He's cheap and crass, lewd, crude, and uneven, as my dad would say. <laughs> but there is one little scene in this that cuts through all that that I really like, where Harry has discovered that Stan, his former assistant, has gone to work for Moran, and he tries to reconcile with him briefly. What do you think is motivating that? Is it because he is legitimately afraid because he is being followed by the people who he has done this job for? Is he legitimately casting about for a connection? Or does he actually really like Stan and wants to repair that relationship? And or possibly concerned that Stan's going to reveal his secrets because uh, he builds a lot of his own equipment. There is that too. Or all of those things. I think about the choice that he makes to reach out to him physically and shake his hand, mm -hmm. if he hadn't done that, I would have thought that it was more about, I need you from a business sense. To me, it feels more about trying to make that physical connection and let him know that, at least in his eyes, at least what his face is telling me, that he's genuinely sorry and he wants him to stay with him. He's valued and it's sincere. That's what it felt like to me. What do you think? I think the handshake that you point out is a great example of a little thing that makes all the difference in the world when you're playing a scene. Now you make me wonder if Coppola wrote that into the script or if that was an intuitive thing that Hackman and Cazal did 
as they worked these parts out because there was an extensive rehearsal process that they talked about. And I wonder who is responsible for that touch. The thing I feel most keenly after that is he does seem to be genuinely concerned about his safety or at least the penetration of his isolation because he's seen that the assistant Harrison Ford is there, is looking for him. And as he goes to make a call to actually try to look for Amy, he's not successful. There's Harrison Ford again on a red couch. And so this is the last time I'll mention that red piece. And it's very disconcerting, though he does point out that it's not a stretch to determine where you would be at the wiretappers convention, you being one of the main wiretappers. But again, I think there is that mounting sense of dread And that seems to be the place that he's in as he's leaving the convention. So is he trying to fend that off with this, what seems to me, uncharacteristic revelry with these guys? Spending time with Moran and his cohorts, not something he would usually do, something he only does once a year. Is this out of character? Because that's one of the times I wrote that it seemed like this is not Harry. I struggle with that as well. And... I'm going to use a term that I don't think really applies, but it's the closest that I could think of. He's not asexual, for example. Mm -hmm. Just because he is closed off and doesn't want to share with other people doesn't mean he doesn't take others in to a certain degree. And all I can do is go back to his face again, and I think that he sells the idea that there's at least some enjoyment that's happening. And when he is getting physical with the model Meredith... That seems to be natural and genuine. He's dancing with her, and he doesn't look stilted or constipated, necessarily. So it's something that is in him, but doesn't reach full expression. I have one other thought just occurred to me. I wonder if it's also a function of this compartmentalization. How you can say to yourself that this job that I've done has resulted in the deaths of other people, but I'm not responsible. So I can also exert my isolation and privacy and then decide to dance with a woman and carouse with some buddies. Well, this scene is all about the compartmentalization because we see him within cages, within columns, behind pieces of opaque plastic. Throughout the movie, we see the composition is often the screen is split into two halves with an object dividing it down the middle. And that's all over the place in this. So it's a cell within a cage within another division. It's the world that he lives in and works in and plays in. It's inescapable. And he thinks he has walled that off from everyone else. And again, it's revealed he's not as on the ball as he thinks. Maybe because we repeatedly are hearing these stories. Harry did this. Harry did that. Harry's a legend in the business to which his response is always, how did you know about that? He thinks he has blocked it off from everyone. I think that goes back to what he has told us, which is that he doesn't know anything about human nature and doesn't care to know. So he has no concept. He can't conceive that other people have these insights based on their own experience. For example, he can't imagine that his mistress could realize that he watches her because He has no ties to that level of human jealousy as experienced by other people. I do this, I guess it's sort of an odd thing, I always have. I've always felt like if I wear sunglasses anywhere, that I'm invisible. If I can't see you, then you can't see me. 
So because he has no insight into human nature, he assumes no one has an insight into him. Okay, wait. How are you with object permanence? If we play peekaboo, do you think I disappear? No. Okay. But I do think if I go in the HEB and I wear sunglasses that I can move throughout the store and no one notices okay. me. It's just that way of creating this barrier. Mm -hmm. I make myself isolated, therefore no one will notice. And I wonder how much of that level of not knowing human nature, if he had had some sort of perception, some sort of other awareness, would it have saved him? Saved him from what exactly? Himself, the end, previous errors. Previous errors I could see. I don't know if I necessarily agree with the classification of him as being someone that needs saving, necessarily. Is he not okay like he is? Based on whose definition? I'd like to revisit that later. Okay. I think of that constipation. Literally, he's tied himself up in knots. So you ultimately think he wants to be different? No, I don't. I don't think he wants the outcome that's going to happen. Okay. Or in the moment that happens in a bit where Moran turns the tables on him and reveals that he's bugged him, he wouldn't be so furious if he had thought for a moment that this would be a possibility if he understood a world in which other people are also doing and feeling and thinking the same things and different things than you. Is that not how you learn those lessons, though? You make it intensely personal for someone. Do you think he's ever going to forget being violated himself that way and now not carry that around in his work when he's doing that to other people from here on? He's going to think about that pen in his pocket every single day. That's why I think about the chicken or the egg thing. Mm -hmm. How much of that has come through his life to make him this way? Even back to the Catholicism. That's not necessarily something, and he doesn't indicate that he's certain sort of a late-in-life convert. That's ingrained. That's beaten into you over years and decades. So why take this long to learn that lesson unless you were specifically avoiding it? Now, there's an interesting scene here where Elizabeth McRae gets Gene Hackman to herself, and it's the beginnings of a seduction. It's specifically interesting to me for one very specific technical aspect. There's an exchange where he is starting to open up to her a little bit and is relaying in his way the story of what happened with Amy, asking her what her reaction might be in a similar situation. And you see the camera repeat a specific move three times. Sets up behind Hackman's shoulder facing her, moves around to face him three times in a row, echoing the repetition of the conversation of the young lovers in Union Square that we see, driving home this theme of Coppola's about repetition as a method of investigation. When you hear something again and again and again, or when you see a pattern repeated over and over, what exposes itself with each iteration? What little bit of inflection in the voice? What slightly different move in this version versus the other makes all the difference in how you interpret it? It's something that he returns to multiple times in the film, this idea of repetition as a way to get at a new or other truth. I think it's also interesting because it's that third iteration of him getting hung up over his words. Mm -hmm. And it looks like he really wants to know the answer to this question, which is basically... Would you go back to a man who didn't share of himself, but who loved you in his way? And she responds that, how would I know he loved me? You'd have no way of knowing. 
And I do want to mention as well the piano score, David Shire's piano score uses beautiful repetition throughout the film. And it's very noticeable here as the camera is pulling away when he gets that answer. There is a wild card that's missing in this scene, though. Francis Ford Coppola mentions that Timothy Carey was supposed to play Moran rather than Alan Garfield. How do you imagine that coming across versus what's on the screen now? If I walked into a convention and saw Timothy Carey, I would turn around and walk right back out. Wouldn't you immediately have your hackles up? And he's such an oddball. I mean, I would be staring at him the whole time. I think Alan Garfield does an amazing job. I think he's really magnetic because he homes in on Harry and never lets go. But Timothy Carey, I I would be wondering what sort of an accent he would come up with or how he would use his voice. Ultimately, I think Garfield is better in general for an audience because he's a salesman, clearly, and that's what he's supposed to be. He's supposed to embody a specific type of slick and unappealing, not dangerous and loony. Yeah. (laughs) There would be so much more menace in this scene. Yeah. So much more implied danger when he is cajoling and picking at Harry, trying to get at Tell us what happened, Harry. Tell us what happened. Yes, I would have told him what happened. We should go into business together, don't you think? Ugh. The scene plays completely differently in my mind. It is much more frightening, but probably the tone would be so inconsistent with everything else that it would be too jarring. This works perfectly, but I sure would like to see the outtakes if they were ever to exist. Now, everyone leaves, and it's just Meredith and Harry. And he is obsessed, compelled to listen to the tapes again, especially that ending part. And as Cindy Williams is saying, I love you, let's stay a little bit longer. And Frederick Forrest says he'll kill us if he has the chance. Harry then, for the first time, takes the Lord's name in vain and says, oh God, what have I done? Oh God. So the party's over, literally. He wakes to find her gone, tapes stolen but only after he has had this bad dream, this nightmare. He sees Anne, Cindy Williams' character, in the fog-shrouded park, and he is trying to catch up with her and explain to her about him, about what has happened, what he's afraid of specifically. And I love this particular piece of dialogue more than any delivery in the film. I'm with you. He specifically mentions, I am not afraid of death. I am afraid of murder. I love his delivery in it. I love how that line is composed like the sets of the film. To me, it is two halves divided down the middle that can function independently of one another and then also have an entirely separate meaning when considered as a whole. It's the best line reading in the whole thing. And this also marks the beginning of Harry's complete breakdown. And Francis Ford Coppola mentioned that this scene was initially meant to be the end of the film. And I think it works really well as a dream. I think it would have been way too on the nose to be at the end. Another of those happy accidents, another of those instances where frustration and throwing up your hands and saying, that's it, I've had it, this is, we're done right now. Turns out they salvaged just enough to make this particular sequence more interesting and using it as a signpost for his descent into madness rather than neatly wrapping everything up works 10 times better as far as I'm concerned. So that just goes to show, always give up on something and it's (laughs) going to turn out fine, right? 
Well, there are a lot of object lessons here. Certainly. Throw in the towel. Don't trust anyone. Don't bang the lady from the boat show. <laughs> right. There's so much beautiful, small-scale dread and paranoia in this, as opposed to the larger government-centric conspiracy stuff like Capricorn 1, Three Days of the Condor, other things that were coming out around the same time that were that similar paranoiac thing. These stakes seem much smaller and to me, therefore, much more interesting. Much more personal, at least. And I guess, if anything, more than anything, this film drives home that old adage of it's not paranoia if they're actually after you. So the scene that turns out to be your favorite is here, right? Yes, so after the tapes have been stolen and he's trying to get in touch with the director's assistant, they're telling him the tape has nothing to do with you, but why don't you just bring the photos and then he will get paid. So when he goes to the director's office, that's when we see Robert Duvall as the director. He can hear them playing the tape through the door. And when he comes in, the money is laid out in stacks on a desk and the sight of him first counting the money in an odd way to make sure it's there and being told by the director, count your money on the outside. I love that. I do think, though, it does seem out of character. It does seem an odd choice for him to make when he has gotten so emotionally involved in the outcome and he is asking, what are you going to do to her? What will you do to them? As he is practically bent over, rifling through these stacks of bills. But again, with these shifting assumptions, I was fascinated by first realizing, okay, this director, it's nothing to do with the government. We're in some sort of an office instead. And at the same time, watching the director's reaction to the tape, it's almost as if he's being forced to listen by his assistant. So what I thought was happening was then completely upended. He does the most uncharacteristic thing of the whole film here for me. When he goes to the hotel, because he knows from the tape when their planned rendezvous is, and he is going to intercept them, prevent this showdown, we're not exactly sure what he intends to do, and he gets the room next to where they are planning to be. There's a lot of Hitchcock de Palma in this particular stretch. Did you feel like that? Did you notice those things? The nods to Psycho, the anticipation of what you would see in Blowout. How much of what he was experiencing in that hotel room do you think was actually real, and how much of it was just his breakdown? That's what I struggled the most with in my first viewing, and less so, I think, in the second and third viewings, but I could be wildly off base. But I assumed that the bulk of it was imagination. Because the murder that he imagines... There's no trace of it. The person whom he thought was the victim turns up alive shortly thereafter. And the person that he thought was the perpetrator is dead, but in a way wholly unrelated to anything that happened in that room. So I struggled with that extreme representation of what he is imagining or what happened, which is the blood coming out of the toilet. Mm -hmm. I assumed that that was not real. Am I crazy? I haven't completely decided. But I lean towards your side of things. I don't think that that is actually literally what is happening in the room. Just more blockage, more constipation? Maybe. I do, though, okay, I said that, but I do struggle with the fact that, can I mention 
Can I get specific about what we then learned? Oh, get specific. Okay. So the idea was that the director, Robert Duvall, was going to murder his wife. That's what he was afraid of and or her lover. What actually happened was that the director was killed ostensibly in a car crash and wife and lover are fine. I then went back and forth and why I struggled with the idea of this isn't necessarily a small conspiracy, but an actual grander one. I thought it was getting set up that they killed him in that hotel room and then faked this car accident. Because when there's this mini press deluge later, when the widow is coming out and they're talking about this chain of succession with the business, I thought, oh, wait, no, this is a bigger conspiracy. This was a fight for power and for money. Well, at least three people were involved. The two lovers and the assistant. The yeah. assistant playing both ends against the middle in this case. Yes. So I think you read that part just fine. So then I guess I think maybe the blood is real because they did murder him there. And that's the only evidence left behind. And that's my last red instance. The only reason I think it's not real is because I've had friends who have been night auditors and desk clerks at hotels. <laughs> and if anything like that happened, it's not going to go unnoticed. The murder part or blood in the toilet part? Both. Okay. At least ultimately. <laughs> Let me tell you this, at least. Don't ever stick your hand under a motel mattress without looking. Ever. Not that you go around doing that sort of thing all the time, but just in case. Another object lesson to learn. So no, I don't think it was real. I think it was his imagination. You do think, though, like me, that they did kill him in that hotel room and yes. then stage this accident. I do think so, yes. Okay. All doubt is removed, finally, ultimately, by the tape itself. When we hear it for the last time, we hear the inflection, finally, say, he'd kill us if he had the chance. The emphasis being on us rather than on kill like it was the first few times we heard it. Coppola really regretted making two versions of that audio, and I wholeheartedly agree with that regret. I wish there had been a more ambiguous single phrasing that he had used throughout, because there is a way, because I've been practicing it in my head to hear, that you could say it one way that could imply different meanings based on where you are in the chronology of the movie. But those aren't the only two options, I don't think. After having talked to you about it, there's one bit of inflection that could also be changed or read two different ways without even changing it, and that is the pronoun. The he part. Because Harrison Ford, we know from Francis Ford Coppola saying this, that he made so much more of this character. And in looking at the part that he is playing in what I will still say is a conspiracy, is that maybe they are talking about the assistant will kill us if he has the chance. So he is then forcing them to kill the director, which satisfies a goal of the assistant. That did not occur to me the entire time. I was strictly thinking in terms of the love triangle. Interesting. So I don't know. Well, I'm, and I do know that's not what they meant, but <laughs> one last thing I want to mention about the inflection, it again goes, I think, back to this point I've been trying to make about him having no knowledge of or even concept of learning about human nature and that it would not have come down to inflection 
if he had understood human nature, it would have been something that maybe he could have understood at some level. But he doesn't, and things go horribly for a lot of people, specifically Robert Duvall's character. Well, Harry retreats to his Fortress of Solitude once more, playing his saxophone along to his jazz records, and he receives a telephone call. And it is clear that he has been bugged, and they threaten him, keep your mouth shut, we'll be listening. Do you think he was going to do anything with this information, ultimately? I do not. Agreed. If he was, wouldn't he have done it right away? I don't know about that necessarily. He's a little circumspect and does not necessarily move with lightning speed on anything except a job, so I'm not sure if he would have gone straight to the police station from there because he could potentially be implicated as well. He played a part in this whole thing, so there's a little bit of self-preservation in that. But ultimately, no, I don't think he would have said a single thing. So interestingly, this threat that is unnecessary, as it turns out, is the catalyst for this final step in his complete unraveling. Whether it's motivated by fear or a bruised ego from not being the top man on the wire tapping totem pole anymore, he dismantles his entire house, top to bottom, looking for a bug that he does not find. And the end finds him in a place that seems almost completely irretrievable. And so why did you choose the conversation? We just did a summer blockbuster, so I wanted to go the other direction and choose something from a director who often operates on that level, Godfather 1, Godfather 2, Apocalypse Now, and instead focus on one of their more personal, small projects. In addition to that, I'm really fond of this theme that this recording he makes is a work of art. He specifically refers to it as such, and like any other documentation or artwork, it is destined to be misinterpreted. And they both had Harrison Ford in them. Does your recommendation also have Harrison Ford in it? I don't think so. I looked back through the cast list and I don't think he's in there. But it is about one of those vast conspiracies. I was going to choose Sneakers again, but I realized <laughs> I'd already done that for another recommendation. So instead, I chose The Parallax View from 1974, directed by Alan Pakula with Warren Beatty and Paula Prentice. And I picked this not just because I really like it and I love the ending, but I'm also a huge Paula Prentice fan, so I thought it would be fun to get her in there. Now, it's the story of an ambitious reporter who gets way in over his head while investigating the assassination of a senator. I haven't seen this one in a long time, but I'd really like to get back to it. How about you? I stuck with the surveillance angle, and I want to recommend The Lives of Others from 2006. Directed by Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, and starring Ulrich Maya, Ulrich Tucker, and Martina Gedek. It's about the monitoring of residents of East Berlin by the GDR's secret police, and it takes what the conversation does so well, which is the muted examination of consequence and character involved in these situations, and multiplies it. The stakes are higher to me because of the widespread social implication of the thriller elements of the story. The conversation is very specific in its isolation and the lives of others take those themes and make them universal and deeply political in a world where surveillance is just assumed a fact of life. It may have been the best film of 2006 now that I think about it. Highly recommended. 
So that's two great recommendations as usual, The Parallax View and The Lives of Others. And that brings us to the end of episode 53. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't checked out our Patreon, we invite you to take a look at that. We appreciate any support that you can give the show, and there are lots of great perks over there, including all sorts of bonus content. That's at patreon.com slash magiclantern. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has supported the show or given us feedback since last time. Our friends over at FUDS on Film, particularly Drew Tavendale, who has been making his way through our back catalog and watching the corresponding films. Eric Parkinson at the podcast This Must Be The Place. Travis Trudell. Jane Sankner. RJ Tugas. Jeff Duncanson. Tim Lego. Tim O'Brien. Andy Wolverton. Rebecca Beagle. Arthur Skulko. Jeannie Howell. And our friends Allie and Adam at the podcast, So That's How It Ends. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, just about any other podcatcher that you use. We'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or review via those services. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>